You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you very much and welcome to the first panel session. Um, as Julia said, my name is James Crabtree. I'm the Mumbai correspondent for the Financial Times. I arrived two days ago, so I'm by no means an expert on what's going on here, so I shall be uh, relatively brief in my introduction. Uh, we're going to be speaking for about an hour and 15 minutes, so going through until half past 11. Um, the aim of this session is to have a discussion. So we will invite our four distinguished panelists to make a short introduction of about five minutes. I'll then ask them a few questions, but the main aim of the session is for you to ask them questions, and so if you could be ready for that, I presume we have some, some roving mics going around the place. Um, the title is India's Place in a Threatening World. Um, I'm hoping that this mic is working. I feel a little bit like Madonna with this headset on, so even if I don't look much like her. Um, it's an interesting week to be addressing this topic, not just as uh, Dr. Thasor uh, mentioned, because it's a week when we will all be remembering the events of three years ago that brought that threat into focus, but also a week in which uh, India's most recognizable company looked all around the world for the successor to its iconic chat decided that it could only get someone close to home, but also a week in which India's politicians looked all around India for the future of their retail sector and decided that in order to allow that to flourish, they had to let outside money in to help the country grow. And behind this question of India's openness to the world lies a, a, a debate which has been running for as long as uh, I've been uh, watching India. The question of whether India is rising, uh, in a straight line, uh, ready to take its place as a superpower beside America, China and others, or whether there's a more complicated picture here of a, of a faltering economy, questionable governance and an uncertainty about what role India wants to play in the world. And so to discuss this, we have four eminently distinguished uh, panelists. We start with uh, are, oh, sorry, you're to my left, Narinda Nair, who's the chairman of Mumbai First and also the managing director of Comcast India. Then we will go to uh, Mihir Bose, uh, on my far right, uh, journalist, author, sports expert, uh, born in Mumbai, but now uh, transplanted to England. Third, uh, Tristram Hunt, Member of Parliament for Stoke in the UK, but also uh, a historian, an academic, a television presenter and a journalist. Um, and as you've already met, as if it wasn't enough having one uh, polymathic parliamentarian author and historian on our panel, we have two. Uh, Shashi, uh, author of innumerable books about uh, everything from India's role in the world to poetry and philosophy, a former senior government official and also a long-time UN diplomat. So with that, I will hand over to our first speaker uh, to speak for five um, on thank the topic. You. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm Delighted to be here this morning and delighted to share the platform with you and delighted, we are Bombay first, we are delighted to support this uh, event this morning here. But we are meeting here under the dark and long shadow of what happened really three years ago when for three days India's most cosmopolitan city and aspiring financial center echoed with gunfire. For three days and three nights, the whole world watched in disbelief as a small group of young men armed with sophisticated gadgets using latest technology exposed the unpreparedness 
of our city. Our thoughts and prayers go to the suffering families of those who lost their loved ones. The deaths of nearly 170 people and injuries to over 300 people not only hurt their own families but the entire nation. Today we share their grief of all, with all those families who lost their loved ones in that pointless and thoughtless attack the whole country was frustrated and angry and wanted some constructive action to be taken. Our Prime Minister said at that, at that, on that occasion it was an attack on the aspirations and dreams of making Mumbai into a global city. According to US reports, India is among the world's worst terrorist affected country. We have seen cross-border terrorism over decades but an assault on the commercial heart of India, the terrorist outrage on 26-11, was unprecedented. Bombay has had the history of terrorist attack, but nothing on the scale that we witnessed on that day. Terrorists wanted to cause panic and havoc, but they miserably failed in that. People were not terrorized. There were no riots in the city, as some had expected, and the city was back to normal life in no time. In my view, the people reacted with great maturity. As we mourn the loss of hundreds of innocent people and share their grief, we need to reflect on whether we have taken enough measures to make sure our city is more secure now. While a lot has been done by the authorities, I think there is still that, a lot that needs to be done. A few months ago on 13th July, areas not very far from where we are, we are, we are today were attacked by the terrorists. And this was another wake of call for all of us. We need to take a new momentum and increase security efforts. Terrorists have gone international and therefore the international community therefore must get together to fight terrorism. Ten years on after 9-11, while momentum on war and terror is floundering, the terrorist organizations and global network are still strong. International community must get together and share their experiences for effective and counter-terrorism measures. Authorities in, in the city carried out certain reports, certain action has been taken, but we do urge the authorities to take, act decisively with a degree of urgency to make necessary changes which will help fight terrorism. Police reform and an effective counter-terrorism policy is very urgently required. We need to focus on a series of substantial but distinct tasks with the support of our international partners at any cost, the city of Mumbai must be secured. Lessons from attacks in New York and London stand out. Despite the brave efforts, the government and public sector alone, in my view, cannot fight, stop terrorism. Responsibility must be shared by every citizen and businessman. And here, when I, having made that statement, <clears throat> I'd like to share with you what an organization like Bombay First has done in, in this very direction. 
soon after our, the terrorist attack on 9-11, we said Bombay First as an organization must see what we can and how we can bring the international community together. So together with our associates and friends in London first, we arranged a, a seminar within about two months of attack taking place when we brought in very, very people who are involved with the aftermath of 9-11 and 7-7. Some of the leading, some of the very important people who were among the members of the 7-7 uh, committee, in fact Richard uh, Barnes, the Deputy Mayor of London, he was there with us. Emily Walker who was on the 9-11 Commission. Sir David Venice who was uh, Under Secretary in the United Nations on Terrorism. They shared their experiences with us. And we gave our paper to the government what can be done and following on from there and later in that year in 2009 we again organized a, <laughs> a conference where we had no other than Sir Paul Stevenson, the Commissioner of London Metropolitan Police, coming and sharing their experiences with us. Since then, Bombay First has acted, worked closely with the state authorities, and more recently we took a delegation to London to see how the experience of counterterrorism there could be made effective here, like on the CCTV system. So Bombay First as an organization is working on several areas to see how we can do. But I think we all of us have to jointly get together and we must resolve to jointly defeat terrorism and our city and indeed our country must be fully spared. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're, I'm going to step around for applause. You have to set the tone early whether you're going to give, now you're going to have to give everyone a round of applause so you set yourself a task for the day. Me here. I'll begin by reading out a portion of a speech that was never made. Um, this is what that portion said. India will be called upon to play an important role in world history in the near future. We all know that in the 17th century, England made a remarkable contribution to world civilization through our ideas of constitutional and democratic government. Similarly, in the 18th century, France made the most wonderful contribution to the culture of the world through our ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity. During the 19th century, Germany made the most remarkable gift through her Marxian philosophy. During the 20th century, Russia has enriched the culture and civilization of the world through our achievements in proletarian revolution, proletarian government, and proletarian culture. The next remarkable contribution to the culture and civilization of the world, India will be called upon to make. Now, as you can see from this, it's rather a dated speech. Not too many people outside the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China would talk about Russia's um, um, contribution to world culture. <laughs> um, that speech was meant to be made in 1938 um, by a very well-known Indian, and those of, us, those of you who are visitors here can see his name down Marine Drive, Shubhash Chandra Bose. He was supposed to make it in London in 1938. He wasn't allowed into London by the then British government, of course, he was considered a dangerous rebel. The point I'm making this speech is, at that time, the Indian freedom movement, struggling to be free, despite the wonderful things that the British had done to India, as Trisham Hunt will tell you later on, um, 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 had a sense of idealism. And what worries me about India, and I come back to India very often, I, I wasn't actually born in Bombay, as I still call the city, if I may call it, without being thrown out of it. Um, I grew up here. What worries me about India, the material progress is there. Incredible material progress. I arrived yesterday at uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji Airport, and I'm sure the airport would have 
um, overwhelmed even the great Shivaji. But you know, wonderful airport. I don't know if I can say that. I probably will be thrown out again. Um, 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 but um, you know, wonderful airport. But what worries me, it always reminds me of the story my father used to tell, who used to be a businessman here making raincoats. He once went, he was invited up to Malabar Hill to a man's house there, a businessman, who the house outside was decrepit. Inside it was lavishly um, appointed. And he said, Saab, uh, what can I do? This is a house of my ancestors. I have to keep the house. You know, I can't do anything with it. But, you know, as you can see inside, I've tried to improve. Later on, my fa father discovered that he was a nouveau riche. He had just recently bought the house, but he wanted to be part of the ancient landed gentry of India. And now, as I see, nobody wants to be part of that. Everybody advertises their materialism. No, no problem about that. Even, even that great god of India, um, um, Sachin Tendulkar, he can't score 100, but has a, has a great car by Michael Schumacher, which I'm, I'm told he drives, he drives at 5 in the morning. Um, but anyway... And the point is, what worries me is the vision thing. What is this India? What is the vision of India? What is this India for? Where is this Indian idealism? Where is this India going? I, I could well understand why Jawaharlal Nehru, after he became Prime Minister, and I lived um, and grew up under Nehru, and it was, you know, uh, my views on Nehru had changed and become um, uh, much uh, fonder of looking back at the Nehru years, why he discarded Gandhi's Ram Raja and went for socialism and so on. Fair enough. The, but what he didn't do, Nehru never explained why he changed the philosophy of India. Um, and since then, and particularly since 1991, if you look at what has happened to India, India has changed policy. In 1991, it opened up the economy. But India is still, if you read the constitution, a socialist country. It still has a planning commission. Today I read in the papers, India has um, decided that Walmart should come in, you know. The poor little um, um, uh, corner shop can go to hell. But anyway, I, I'm sure this is a good, good idea. But it took 10 years to, to decide. And why has it been done? It has been done under economic pressure. There's no debate I can find. There's no philosophy I can find as to where India is going. What is this vision of India? I'm not saying that uh, um, uh, Indians should um, agree with Shabat Bose and say this would make a contribution to world um, civilization and culture. That was, you know, probably um, the, 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 the bombastic language necessary when Indians were fighting for freedom. But nevertheless, a country needs a vision. A country needs a philosophy. A country needs to define what it wants out of his life and society. And there has been, in my opinion, a failure, not just of the politician, and you can't expect even Indian politicians to think, with the great exception of Shashi Thiruria, yeah, very much. But nevertheless, um, um, country needs its intellectual and its thinkers to think, to tell us what is necessary, what is needed. And, and I follow India quite closely, though I don't live here. I come back here quite often. And I don't find that at all. And let me conclude by quoting a man whose statue is just down, and Shashi Tharoor made the mention of Gateway of India, whose statue is at the Gateway of India. Uh, India then, of course, was um, a colony of Britain. A lot of debate in India as to how a huge country like this can be colonized by a small island. And uh, there was a lot of feeling that India should gather strength. India should become stronger. India shouldn't just be the um, spiritual wholesaler of spirituality. That was one of the claims made by India. You know, a lot of claims have been made by many people about India. Uh, it's a nice concept, isn't it, that India could be the Walmart of spirituality, though they didn't quite achieve that. But nevertheless, um, uh, and that man said, he said, if you want strength, don't read the Bhagavad Gita. If you want blood in your veins, play football. 
Now, as it happened, India didn't play much football. And um, that man, of course, was Swami Vivekananda. But at that time, I, I quote those words to you in conclusion, because at that time, people were thinking what India is meant to be, what India wants to be, what is India's vision. And what is very sad now, that while India has made economic progress, a lot of people have come out of poverty, though still there are a lot of people in poverty, a lot of changes have come about, except that in Bombay there are still two roads from lead from south to north Bombay, that will never change, presumably, or presumably it will change if we all call it Mumbai, but nevertheless. Um, um, the, I mean, apart from that, what is lacking in India is the sort of intellectual debate about India that is solely needed. And if India doesn't do that, I'm afraid the future for India is not quite as rosy as some people think. Thank you. Thank you very much. The great fear of a chair in one of these panels is that your panelists won't say anything controversial. And here is uh, Scotch that one. Tristram. Right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, when we think about India's place in a, in a threatening world, the, the title of this discussion, I think obviously our, our starting point is the, is the end of the, of the post-war Pax Americana. Uh, and with that, the economic, if not yet uh, political, self-realization of, of the BRIC countries, although I increasingly think we can remove the R uh, from, from, from the BRICs. Uh, and with it also this, this historic geostrategic move from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Uh, but with that also the rise of terrorism, the rise of non-state actors, nuclear proliferation, uh, the kind of terrorism we're commemorating uh, today. These are complicated uh, terrains, it seems to me, uh, and, 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 and quite rightly understood as a threatening world. Within all that, what is India's space? What is its place? And I want to begin my remarks really following on from a, from a very brilliant essay uh, which Sashi wrote in a very brilliant book edited by Joe Johnson called Reconnecting Britain um, and India. And really the notion of, of soft power and hard power and how India plays these these two off against each other. I think we, we all appreciate today India's profound economic strength, but also its profound cultural strength, whether it is Bollywood or cricket or curry or fashion or political science brilliantly placed around the world by Amartya, fine art, even this sort of strange cultural reappropriation uh, of Big Brother, uh, which has happened uh, uh, here in Mumbai. But with that also, uh, the tolerance, the democracy uh, that we've all uh, heard about uh, this morning. And this is an enormous global reach which is, which is only set uh, to grow further and I think the co the, this conference is testament to that. All of which is as it were very nice to have. But does that help India's strategic objectives? Does that help uh, India when it comes to foreign policy security. And I think when we, when we think about India's strategic objectives, those are uh, primarily two. The, first of all, the stabilization uh, of Afghanistan, Pakistan, the prevention of the re-Talibanization uh, of Afghanistan and the threats uh, that poses to India. And secondly, what is called the, the sort of the management of the rise of China, how to manage the rise of China in a sort of subtle and deft way. Although, I have to tell you, no one told the Times of India about that. Um, because this week's headline in the Times of India was India spanks China in UN race. 
<laughs> snatches key post after 10 years of Beijing nominees. Uh, and this is about the, uh, the India-UN candidate beating uh, the Chinese uh, for, a, for a top UN post. And it's, it's wonderfully illustrated with, a, with a, uh, an Indian uh, figure being placed inside a ballot box, raising his hands in victory. And then a Chinese figure, really of a sort of interwar cultural stereotype which you would not be allowed to put in a British newspaper skulking off uh, into the corner so in terms, in terms of the management of the rise of China uh, it, it, it seems uh, uh, to be a bit of a nuancing um, so in all of this the, the soft power is fine but as, as Sashi says in his, his fine essay behind that you need you need the hard Power and, and the history of 20th century American soft power was having the hard power behind that. And, and there seems what's so interesting in, in this is, is uh, as old Marxists would say, the contradiction in the form, um, which is that the stronger your assertions of hard power, the prospective weakening of your soft power. Um, and the assertion of American hard power in Iraq or UK hard power in Afghanistan actually did damage to their soft power around the world. And when we think of the assertion of, Ameri of, of Indian hard power in Kashmir or the assertion, increasing assertion of Indian chauvinism vis-a-vis -vis China, is that ultimately going to undermine Indian soft power around the world? So a balance it seems to me in terms of India and a threatening world needs to be struck and given that we are in Mumbai uh, there seems to me a sort of yin and yang balance between New Delhi and Mumbai between the soft power and the hard power which which hopefully can be achieved if you allow me for a minute to be parochial uh, about this and talk from a British perspective I mean my question is what what role partly can can Britain play in this and in and in Joe's book, um, we have a very sort of stark warning, uh, it seems to me, about the, the limitations uh, of Britain today. Uh, the only British institution that now commands serious interest in India is the English Premier League, uh, it is said. Uh, the point is that Britain now offers almost nothing distinctively British. It will be assessed solely on the transactional morality based on instrumental purposes. Moreover, Britain has little to contribute strategically to India's principal security objectives. I'm not sure that's the, the entire story because when we think about questions of trade, questions of global governance, questions of climate change strategy, multilateralism, defence ties, actually a new role for the Commonwealth, there is a, potentially a story of quite fruitful cooperation between uh, Britain and India. But there is also a hard power crux, which is that we in Britain want effectively shot of Afghanistan and India does not want us to be shot of Afghanistan. And how that plays itself out is, is problematic. I'll end with this. I think from a, from a, from a Westminster perspective, um, I am struck by how little effective communication and diplomatic lobbying there is from India in comparison to China. Um, and the, the ability of the Indian voice to get itself heard in Westminster and Whitehall. Now on the one hand, that might be because simply India is not interested in what Westminster or Whitehall has to think, which is you know, uh, uh, an, an understandable 
approach. But on the other hand, if it is, then it, it needs to raise its game. And that is, is the same case on the British side. We, we prepare like Bilio when we go to China. Uh, parliamentarians and ministers do their homework there across everything. We think too often we can wing it when it comes to India. We think we, we know India, we think we, we know what it's about and we can just do it. And actually we don't. Uh, and we need to do, from a UK perspective, uh, a great deal uh, more hard work uh, and engagement if we want to keep up that hard power, soft power relationship. Very good. And finally, we'll Shashi for reflection. Well, having had the pleasure and the privilege of addressing you for 10 minutes already, I think it's probably unfair of me to say too much the second time around. I think when, the, when Voltaire was invited by the Marquis de Sade to a second orgy, he said, once is philosophy, twice is perversion. So I, I'll, try, I'll try not to be too perverse. I mean, the fact is that... Uh, the fact is that each of these speakers before us has taken a distinctive approach on the question of India's place in the threatening world. Uh, I'm tempted to respond briefly to Tristan, uh, whom I broadly agree with, even if there is a book which is the only book to which I've contributed that I've never seen a copy of, and I'm <laughs> looking very meaningfully at its editor. Well, I hope we'll spring one before the day is done. But, but, um, but the fact is that... Um, India is in a, in a very interesting position today in this threatening world we, we, we speak of. It's a country which has very clearly made up its mind that its overriding priority is its own domestic development. That for once, uh, after having had many decades of having had an opinion on every international issue, having tried to lead the non-aligned movement, having tried to say uh, various things on various issues far, far away from us, in the last 20 years or so, you've seen an India that is very sharply and clearly focused on the priority of pulling its people out of poverty and ensuring the security and well-being of its people. And foreign policy and security policy are now unambiguously means to that end. Uh, we conduct a foreign policy not because we necessarily want to pronounce ourselves in various things, but because we want to see how people can help us. So we have good relations with countries that might invest in us, good relations with countries that are important trading partners, good relations with countries that are sources of energy security, oil and gas in particular, good relations with countries increasingly important now that are sources of food security, a serious repair job in the neighborhood, if for no other reason than that we can't afford to be distracted from our domestic goals by subcontinental diversions, and at the same time, of course, uh, water security for our neighborhood is going to be an increasing issue. So it's, this is uh, perhaps an unduly sort of functionalist interpretation of India's vision of its role in the world. But I will complement it with one more thought, which is that when we first came to independence, after 200 years of being excluded from making decisions about ourselves by colonial rule, we were understandably extremely preoccupied with what the scholars used to call our focus on our strategic autonomy. I mean, non-alignment was an emanation of this idea that we had to be the ones making our own decisions. We would not join any alliance because we wanted the right to say for ourselves from issue to issue how we felt about something. There's a wonderfully apocryphal story of, of uh, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, a man who had notoriously once proclaimed that non-alignment between good and evil is itself evil. Uh, Dulles allegedly said to Nehru in, uh, in words we've come to hear more recently about some another American 
figure are you with us or against us and Nehru is said to have replied yes <laughs> we're with you when we agree with you we're against you when we disagree with you and the freedom to do that was fundamental to Nehru's view uh, of the world today I think we are in a position to move beyond a focus purely on our strategic autonomy because we can afford to take it for granted no one in the world is going to be in a position to threaten our strategic autonomy and I think we are in a position now to play a more proactive role in helping shape the rules for the global commons in helping devise the way in which the world of the 21st century is to be run that's the logic behind our desire to be on the Security Council permanently and so on it's about India saying we're no longer just a subject of the international system we are prepared ourselves to play a part in it and we have earned that right by our responsible conduct over the last 65 years by our responsible management of our own democratic diversity uh, and frankly uh, by our economic growth which has obviously uh, made us a country that the world takes increasingly seriously and this approach is coming at a time when I genuinely believe and I'm going to say this in a book that I hope will be finished by next year uh, uh, in time for my wife's birthday it's a promise she's 27th of June so hold me to it um, I think we're heading towards a world without superpowers we're heading towards a world that rather like the age of the World Wide Web is going to be an increasingly networked series of alliances amongst multiple actors and in my view in such a world India is very well positioned because we have become ready to graduate from non-alignment to what I called the no one picked me up on it when I said this as a minister a world of multi-alignment uh, that is a world in which we will belong to both the non-aligned movement and the community of democracies where we will belong to both the G77 and the G20 we'll belong to both the United Nations as a universal organization but try and be active in the South Asian Association for regional cooperation locally where we will get together with Brazil and South Africa in a southern hemisphere alliance called IPSA where we will happily work with Russia and China as well in both RIC and BRICS so all of these promiscuous international relationships with different groups of people for different purposes are going to be the hallmark in my view of the future era and India is wonderfully positioned to be key players in all of these indeed it is striking that if you look at all of these RIC, BRIC, IBSA, uh, the non-line movement, the community of democracies, the Indian Ocean Rim Association, the G77, the G20, India is a common factor in every single one of them. Uh, even when BASIC was invented in Copenhagen, the I in BASIC was India. And that I think makes India a particularly significant player in the networked world of the 21st century and the broader threats and issues that uh, lie behind the choice of this topic for this panel will I think be dealt with from a different position one which uses soft power which uses more adroit diplomacy than the Times of India is constitutionally capable of uh, uh, in, in managing the multiple sets of relationships that come with the territory thank you I'm, um, I'm rather taken with the idea that India is well placed for a global age of promiscuity 
Um, now, one thing I'm afraid that as your chair for this session, I also find that I can't count because instead of having an hour and 15 minutes looking at the timetable, I realize you've only got 10 minutes to go. So it was a, a shorter session than I thought. I'll just ask a quick question and then we'll, we'll go to the floor and have at least one round of questions and then we're going to have to wrap up, I'm afraid. But it seemed to me that in this, you know, we had four interesting perspectives, but it was Mihir oh, that laid down the challenge, which was that... Um, India lacks a philosophy and a vision for this um, global age. And so I thought I'd put this to each of the panel and just ask them to reflect for a, for a minute on whether they agreed with that or, or well, not. I just articulated my vision. You gave yours, so let me, let me go to Narinder. And what, what, what's your reflection on Mihir's challenge to us today? Yes, um, sorry. India is, India is well placed, I think very rightly said. We've got, you know, we've got looking at several areas. India is looking at uh, in various forums economically strength our uh, security so we are well placed to, to look, this, uh, look at this matter and move forward on that yeah. Tristram what did you I mean I, I, mean, I, think, I think the answer that India is, is focused on internal growth alleviation of poverty is, uh, is a vision it's the, I mean it, the problem is it's, it, it is often not described in, in perhaps in heroic enough terms about, about what that's about in terms of a world actor. But how does it differ, I suppose, is, is an interesting question, from China? Is it in any way different to China's uh, ambitions, given the, the very different history uh, and ethos and the democracy and the tolerance and the pluralism? Are, from an outside perspective, is the Indian vision and the Chinese vision simply the same in terms of no. internal growth and poverty alleviation? No, it's not. I mean, in fact, what's interesting is, of course, China uh, is defined also by the pace of its success. Uh, it has grown at breakneck speed, but in the process it's broken a few necks. Uh, this is a country which is an authoritarian state, and it has indeed successfully um, pulled a large number of people out of poverty, managed and astonishing pace of growth and done so while largely abstaining from uh, international responsibilities uh, for, for quite a long time. It's begun now to start playing a role internationally but um, uh, it also has I think a vision of itself as a potential superpower. Uh, India's is, is very different. We see ourselves as a responsible cooperative partner in various kinds of international <laughs> relationships. We don't see ourselves as a superpower even if, if outside commentators often use that phrase. I earn some notoriety by saying we can't be a superpower when we're still super poor. But the fact is that, that overcoming that state of being superpower is, of super poor is far more important than aiming for anything like superpower status. But in the meantime, we've been extremely active in international institutions, in peacekeeping, in international rulemaking, and of course we have sustained the principle and practice of democracy at home. So very, very different from China. But the vision I spoke about was not just, as I said, not just the internal development. It's the larger role in a networked world that I think India, as a democracy, is well placed to play. Mihir, I mean, so what Shashi said was, a, was a, an implicit rebuttal that um, moving beyond its heritage of strategic autonomy, India was now ready to, to take that vision that you say the country doesn't have. So what's your response to well, that? Well, first of all, I don't accept the Chinese system and I wouldn't want to live in the Chinese system. But one example is very good. China knows what it wants. For instance, when it decided to hold the Olympic Games, it said this was China's coming out party. And it's a party that will never be repeated because Goldman Sachs and all the others, Lehman Brothers, happened after that. And India, look at the Commonwealth Games. 
Now, this was meant to be India's coming out party, and we all know what happened to the Commonwealth Games. Okay, it worked on the night, because it always works on the night in India. But, you know, leading up to it was a complete disaster, and afterwards, there's still disasters going on. And Shashi says India's um, foreign policy is a success. India created Bangladesh and has no influence in Bangladesh. India helped Nepal come out of the Rana rule back in the 50s. And as I see from this great victory over China that it has in a minor diplomatic post in the United Nations, it seems Nepal voted for China, not India. So where is this Indian regional influence? This thing, this, this lack of morality that Indians keep talking about. I mean, I, I sat through the summer watching the Indian cricket team, supposedly the richest cricket team in the world, put on a performance of such shambolic ineptitude um, against and beaten by England, which for a change was, was poorer than in India, but got its resources better. And I think what happens with India is that India doesn't seem to be all this talk. I don't know what the planning commission still does. I mean, you know, it would be wonderful to know why we have a planning commission in a country which has been opened up to Walmart. What is it going to do? Plan for Walmart? I mean, you know, what, what, why is it still there? Why is the word socialist still there in the Indian constitution? Chashi, I'm told, do you want to and one, one final thing. Okay. I'm told that the land acquisitions are being done under the 1866 Land Act. And why hasn't that been changed? Why hasn't somebody sat down and gone through the laws of this country and said, these were the laws we inherited from the wonderful British, and you know, but some of them don't work anymore. Maybe we ought to get rid of them. Very good. Let me... Um... <clears throat> <laughs> I think the only point I like is because, you know, we still, we have democracy here, whereas in China you can do things in, a, in a quite a different way. If you want to develop a city, you want to break down and remove slums, you can do it overnight. Yeah, but look, you can look at the legislation. South Africa had um, Truth and Reconciliation well, I, Commission. I agree. Why but didn't the Indians after 47 well, have something that's like that? That's one of the problems. Our, right. our implementation process is very slow. The governance is very... Poor, I would say, in a way. So a lot of changes need to be done. But yet, uh, we are working in a democ democratic world. You have, a, as a prime minister, you have co coalition partners. You have a problem of coalition. So, gentlemen, let's go to the. Do you want me to, um, yes. to leave me his various non-secretaries unchallenged? <laughs> I think uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the role of the audience is going to be to challenge that. So let me. Let's go out. Um, Julie has allowed us a few more minutes. So, uh, if we could get a microphone to the two people at the back, if you could make your, make your points Hello. quickly and make, a, make them a question, we would be grateful. We do have to... Um, uh, and again, Hello. Could, Hello. Could, you, could you say who you are yeah. so we know? I'm, I'm Kirit Mehta. I agree with the observations of Mr. Bose, but what I look at it is like this, that it's not only India that faces this situation. If we look at last 10 or 15 years behavior of politicians in US, Europe, other countries, the uh, industrialists, financial managers, bureaucrats, what we find is same in last 10 years, that's how the world is affected economically, politically and socially. So it's not a problem of India, but it's of the world and where few people have, have not been managing it well, governing it well, and that's how the world is badly affected. Very good. I, I look forward to your response. Thank you. Is there a question over here, the gentleman in the pink shirt? Hi, um, Matt Peacock from Vodafone. Just, just one curious observation, interested in the panel's views. Uh, no one's mentioned the big C word, corruption. What, why is that? Very good. And let's have, let's have one more. I see the gentleman, in, oh no, the, the, actually the lady over here on the left. 
Jeannie Varginathan from the BBC. Um, this is all about India's place in the world. Um, would it have been interesting to have a woman's perspective on the panel? Um, and also just want to ask about the fact that India is going to be the youngest country in the world, some more than 50% under 25. How will that play a role in changing India as well? Very good. So we had three different points, which I think I'll just go back to the panel and ask for a reflection. The first was that um, India ought not be blamed especially because the faults that you see here are common all throughout the world. Uh, the second was to bring up the issue of corruption, which will be dealt with in the next panel in particular, but if people want to say a quick word about it. Uh, and on the issue of gender, panel, you have to take that up with the organisers, not me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you, um, so let me go back around the panel and pick up on those points concluding remark and we'll go in in the same order in which we spoke I think so Shashi um, well on, on the question of not blaming India alone certainly that's, that's true because obviously uh, things like fuel prices are international prices they affect food prices in turn some of the crises are indeed those but some of the things that we've been upbraided for not doing are being done there is as you know a new land acquisition act coming before parliament which will undo the pernicious legacy of the British that Mears pointed to. Uh, we will indeed, uh, no one is going to tamper with the word socialist in the constitution, not just for the same reason as the Chinese Communist Party still calls itself <laughs> communist, even though uh, I don't think any Marx, Marxian would recognize that in their practice, but simply because um, the abiding concern of India remains with the 70% of the people of this country who live below $2 a day. And therefore, uh, it's an aspirational term rather than a policy prescription. Uh, why do we still have a planning commission? Because it's a way of both laying down certain markers and guidelines and creating a mechanism for distributing national revenues across a large and diverse country where some states are genuinely behind others and need a leg up. And so some semblance of planning helps. And, and it has more or less worked within the parameters of a mixed economy. So there are domestic factors and international ones, and that first question is corrupt. On corruption, you're right, it should have been mentioned, but except that I think we all interpreted this panel as being about international affairs. Corruption very, very clearly is a major issue in India today, and Anna Hazari and his movement have to be credited with having given it the extraordinary public salience that it has. Uh, I think it's very clear that whereas the media and to some degree the coverage of this movement has been focused on the big ticket corruption the one lakh seventy six thousand crore whatever that number means it's beyond most people's ken uh, or, the, or the commonwealth game scam and so on scams which capture the headlines but which don't actually hit people in their own immediate pocketbooks their own wallets the truth is that what most people in India experience as corruption is the petty corruption of daily life it's the going to, the, to get a driving license and having to bribe for it. It's, it's somebody losing a parent in the middle of their grief having to pay a, a bribe before getting a, a death certificate rapidly enough. It's a pregnant laboring class woman going to a hospital and finding she's not allowed to, to have the bed that she's entitled to by law without bribing an orderly, otherwise she'll have to deliver on the floor. Or the widow who can't get her pension processed without bribing a clerk. That is the corruption that the media doesn't even talk about, which is the real corruption that affects the vast majority of Indians. And that's what really has ignited the passion behind the Anahazari movement. I believe that the Lokpal bill, the Lokpal bill goes a very, very small distance towards tackling the real corruption. It creates a supra-institution with the power to, to investigate, to prosecute, and to punish. Uh, it is going to have apparently 
it's going to find 20 or 30,000 cents to staff uh, its, its establishments across all the ministries of the state and national governments. But you're not going to have a lokpal in every government hospital, in every municipal office, in every driving examiner's desk, and so on. And so petty corruption is not being tackled, which is why the best remedy still remains the one that Mahatma Gandhi propounded 70 years ago, when he said, be the change you wish to see in the world. If only Anna Hazareji had made his movement about moral change in society, if he had gone from village to village saying, take a note that you will never give a bribe. Because in our country, corruption exists because there is a giver and a taker. If we all stopped being givers, there would be no taker. They could not survive. They survive because there's always some Indian who wants a shortcut, or who wants to evade a punishment, or who wants to bribe to get a favor, or wants to get an advantage over somebody else. And that's why corruption persists. And if we don't look at it in ourselves, if we think that the solution is going to lie in a law written outside parliament and imposed upon the nation, to my mind, that is a very, very grave subversion of both our constitutional systems and of the real problem itself, that the, the, the cure doesn't address the disease, or most of the disease, and maybe worse than the, than the disease. These are my anxieties uh, about the issue, but it's, 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 it's an important one to talk about anywhere in India, so you raise it, but I think the panel topic didn't warrant it. That's On the young lady, yes, women, absolutely right, we should have had them here. Uh, half of us should have been there, so uh, we, are, we are at fault. But Next as far time. as young Next. people are concerned, you're right, we are a, a very anomalous society where 65% of our population is under 35, 65% of our cabinet is above 60. Uh, we, 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 are, we are a country, we are a country led by, um, by people uh, who, who, who have privileged experience, and experience is extremely valuable uh, uh, over the young. But I want to end by quoting something that Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, who was then 78, said to us Congress MPs after the last election, uh, when we assembled in the Central Hall of Parliament. He said, uh, remember we won the support of a lot of young voters in this election, which is true, the Congress swept that demographic. And we must always remember to respect the impatience of the young. Mm -hmm. Coming from a 78-year-old Prime Minister, that was wonderfully heartening. I think some of that urgency was very apparent in the first few months of the new government. Clearly a lot of things have gone awry since then. We need to find that spirit again. And if we do, it can still be an India that serves the young even if it is not always led by the other. Very good. Now, I'm afraid we've run over time, so at the risk of being very rude, I'm going to deny Mihir and Tristram oh, their, final, uh, their final remarks, unless you have a pressing thing Thank to say. Do you have a pressing last thought? Well, all I was going to say was, talking about um, intellectual debate, there has been a lot of intellectual debate in America and Britain when there's been change of policy, moving from state socialism to Thatcherite economics, and a debate is going on now about the bankers and so on. I do not sense that sort of debate when I come to India or when I watch what's happening in India. There's a lot of debate on Indian television, but that's more like shouting, uh, very interesting shouting at times, but nevertheless, that doesn't look to me like debate, and, and there isn't a fervor to define what India is, and that is what worries me about India. And of but course, corruption, as Sashi said, is a, is a huge topic, which is probably, you know, um, I'm always reminded of the policeman who said, I'll take a little bit today, and I'll take a little bit tomorrow as well, and not take too much, and maybe people are taking a bit too much nowadays, that's the problem. Tristram, you said you had a final thought? Final two thoughts. Uh, first of all, it, it's perfectly fine to have socialism still in the Constitution because socialism is always aspirational. Uh, famously, in the, in, the, in the 1960s, the Soviet Union put off communism for another 50 years because they weren't quite there. Uh, so it's still always an endpoint. But I think, in terms of the, the politics, that there is a, a disjuncture in, 
in nations across the world in terms of the political systems um, and the global economy today. And we talk in Western Europe about a democratic penalty uh, that the, the, the bond markets are hammering uh, those countries with democracies um, who can't make the kind of swift decisions that you're seeing in non-democratic uh, countries to satisfy the markets. And that is a real problem as to how you have democratic legitimacy, political accountability, and a globalized capital market. Very good. I would invite you to give a warm applause to our speakers. <laughs>